So last week, when Jonathan preached on Abraham's failure in trusting the Lord and emphasized Abraham's other faith of trusting in himself, at certain points in the sermon, Jonathan made some connections to the book of Romans. And I want to particularly emphasize the connection he made with Romans chapter 7 and how he talked about uh, his view, and it's my view as well, that Paul was giving sort of like a diary-like description of the struggle and the fight with his own flesh. Highlight a couple of verses like this where Paul says, I don't, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. A few verses down, Paul says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now, Paul when he says, there is nothing good that dwells in me, <clears throat> he, he qualifies that. And he doesn't say completely, but he says that is in my, the ESV will say in my flesh, the NIV says in my sinful nature. So Paul is saying there's this battle that's going on between me and my flesh, or my sinful nature, as the NIV puts it. Can you relate to having competing desires internally? Then Paul goes on and says, what a wretched man that I am. Can you relate to feeling like that at times in your life? Oh, I'm such a mess. What a wretch. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who, who will save me from this flesh? And he goes on and he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul doesn't stop with, wretched man that I am. Ugh, I just give up. Uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why does he say that? It's because like what Jonathan said last week, he, he stated that if the Apostle Paul came to our day and heard how many people relate to this passage, he would be disturbed by that. Because I know I've had the experience in my own life before. I've had the experience in coming alongside other people where they very much relate with the Romans 7, in certain ways, this struggle. But when I sit down with them and talk with them, it's like they think, well, this is just going to be the rest of my life. They, they don't have really any sense of the victory that Jesus gives. It's like the individuals or the people believe sin wins. Have you ever felt like that before? I'm saddened and burdened when people are in that. Because what Paul emphasizes is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's no condemnation. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has set you free to actually be able to glorify him, love him, obey him. And so Paul will go down further. I'm going to quote uh, from the NLT here that says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. I just want to stop there for a moment. You haven't received a spirit to be bound to fear. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba, Father. Mm. Now, what does all of this have to do with Abraham and Sarah and Genesis? A lot. Last week, after Jonathan preached, I went to one of my favorite critiquers, which is one of my children, and I asked them, what was the sermon about? Could you tell me what the sermon was about? And they said, well, um, Christians shouldn't live in fear. We shouldn't just be bound in fear. But you know what, Dad? I feel like that's like the point of every sermon the last few weeks. It's just like don't, don't live in fear. And that, and that child actually is getting the point. But of course, there's more to this. But this aspect of fear is very important. We can live on the basis of fear or we live on the basis of Jesus Christ. But what I want us to see as well is this relationship in Genesis that God has with Abraham to show us that it's not just about being fearful or not being fearful. What we see in this scenario, in the, in the life of Abraham, is this relationship of God testing Abraham in order to grow him in his dependence on the Lord. And what we see is a pattern of how God works in the lives of all people who trust in him. That it's a process over time, decades, our whole life, where God tests and then tries us and grows us and tests, tries and grows, tests, tries and grows. And now today, what we're going to see here in, in Genesis 21 is even some more fruit of that testing and trying that God has been working in Abraham. We see how God has drawn Abraham closer and closer to him relationally. Because the point of life, the point of our lives, is to commune with God, right? It's not just to be able, it, it's, it's not to impress God. No, no, it's not. It's to grow in our relationship with him. And so we see that God works through each testing to refine Abraham, to reveal aspects of his faithlessness and to refine his faith. Each test that we have looked at in Abraham's life has shown Abraham's fear. And each test calls Abraham to have a healthy awe and fear of the Lord. Each test revealed how Abraham could still turn to bondage, but each test has also set him free more and more in the Lord. Each test, Abraham could have walked away saying, wretched man that I am, 
while also being able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation. I am no longer a fearful slave to go back into fear. And what we don't see, and this is the amazing grace of God at work in Abraham, what we don't see Abraham say is, well, I guess sin wins, and I'm just going to stay the way that I am. No, instead, because the Lord had saved him, the Lord is committed to saving him and to continue his work. And the same is true for all of us who trust in Jesus. So when we hear this of Abraham, we ought to think of ourselves as well. Christian, sin doesn't win. I'm going to say that again. Sin doesn't win, Christian. The gospel of Jesus sets you free in all aspects of life so that you can truly live. You're no longer bound. You're bound to Jesus. You're bound to God, who is your freedom and loving fathers. Now, these, Father, that these realities ought to transform you. They will transform you. And so as we enter into Genesis 21, we begin to discover the ways that God has grown Abraham's faith in him. With that, I'm going to give you the main idea of the sermon today, which is lengthy, but we'll walk it through. God's faithfulness to his word should lead us to joy, dependence, and confidence in his promises, provision, and presence. Now, again, we're going to break this down, but I pray that you will be nourished and comforted in the Lord as we travel through this entire chapter of Genesis 21. This chapter has many, or three basic stories to it, but they're all, I believe, interconnected. That's why we're taking the whole chapter. And what I want to do is actually, I'm going to start with the end of the chapter first this morning to see these truths. Because the ending of this chapter actually gets us to the cultural setting and the context of the events that are taking place in chapter 21. The ending reveals the political tension, Abraham's confidence, and also God's provision. So let's just read these verses together. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 21, and starting in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up, and return to the land of the Philistines. What is going on here? Why am I reading this first? 
It's because the phrase that starts this in verse 22 is really important. You look at the first three words, at this time. That means that these political tensions were taking place during the same time period as Isaac's birth and his weaning and Hagar and Ishmael being sent away. These are all the things that happen in this chapter. These political tensions clearly did not happen overnight. Abraham talks about digging a well, and then citizens of Abimelech's city took it over. And Abimelech and the commander also acknowledge they've been watching Abraham, clearly for a time, to see how God has prospered him, and they want Abraham to guarantee to them that Abraham is not going to hurt them. So God has made Abraham prosperous. Clearly God has done this because Abimelech and his commander are coming asking for mercy, a guarantee that Abraham's not going to hurt them. And clearly this is happening over time because it would take time for a well to be built, to be taken as well. And by the way, just to make sure that we understand this, to have a well taken from you is very serious. We, we live in immense prosperity, right? That if my water stops in my house, okay, that is very inconvenient. I'm just going to go over to Ben Jox's house. He's close by. We'll take some showers there, and then I'm going to get some water jugs and, you know, okay. But think about even people groups now, like in Africa, where they've had no fresh water, and then you have organizations coming in, giving them wells, and now they have fresh water. What what do you think they're feeling when they get this water? Excitement, joy. And then imagine somebody coming and taking over that well. You can't have this. This is the idea. Okay? It's like saying, we wish you're dead. You have no water. Water is absolutely vital to the people group. Now, as we read this encounter with Abraham and Abimelech, I can't help but see a difference in Abraham from the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, what did Abraham do? Abraham resorted to faith in himself, trusting in his own schemes, right? He was afraid of death. He became bound to his own sin. But where's Abraham's faith here? All of a sudden, Abraham is very confident. Don't don't you see that? Like when you look at the text, he comes off very confident here. And he tells Abimelech what's happened to his people, and he requires that the well be given back to him. Now, there's debate over whether or not Abimelech really knew what had happened. Because it kind of it doesn't make sense that he would have no idea. Okay? But we can debate over that one. Abimelech says he doesn't know. And what's so intriguing is that with, that with that answer, Abraham doesn't declare or demand. Instead, he provides animals as a part of the covenant. And it's clearly an excess. It's not necessary because Abimelech says, what are, what are these? Why are you giving me these seven ewe lambs? Instead of Abraham resorting to anger and the anger of man, 
And instead of him going to demanding, he gifts Abimelech. And right here, right here, Abraham is a blessing to a nation, to a people, which is really important, right? Because what did God say all those years before? Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham blesses instead of curses. Ventura, I want to take a quick side note here because we're given a wonderful example of how we ought to live as Christians in this world. Did you know that in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Peter, emphasizes how Christians ought to think in living in this world? He says, we are to follow the examples of sojourners and exiles. We're not necessarily to follow the example of Israel when they were in the nation of Israel. We're to follow the example of the sojourners like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and Israel when they were in exile. That's the example we're supposed to follow. So what do we see here from Abraham when he's, when he's out here? What's, what's the positive example here? Abraham's confidence that he has in the Lord, and because the Lord is taking care of him, he can give. Isn't, isn't by the way, that, that's what Jesus actually says to his own disciples. Freely you have been given, so what? Freely give. Jesus himself tells us, you're to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you and, and speak poorly against you. What? How many of you, does that come naturally? Me either. And Jesus acknowledges that too, doesn't he? But Jesus says, what good is it if you're just nice to the people who are nice? This is the Timothy Dury translation. If you're just nice to the people who are nice, you're just like everybody else in the world. But if you love your enemies, that's different. That's different because that shows who God is. Because Jesus loved his enemies, us, and came and graced us. Now we are completely set free, even if those enemies take our well and say they wish us dead. I can still give, right? Because I'm secure in Jesus Christ. You're secure in Jesus Christ. You can give and give and give. Here, Abraham is different. It's different in blessing them instead of trying to protect himself. So we have in this chapter, this context of political tension, Abraham's confidence and God's provision. God's going to take care of him, and he believes it. This is God's grace, and I hope you see that Abraham has come to this point through all the testing that has taken place in his life. It's not just overnight, all of a sudden, Abraham, I am a very trusting person in God. This is God's grace at work through the trials. Now let's go to the beginning of the chapter. And here we see the promised child, Sarah's joy, and Abraham's obedience. Now when I say the promised child, I hope that you hear in this an emphasis on God being faithful to his word. God is faithful in whatever he speaks. Whatever God says happens. Always. God never reneges on his promises. He's always confident in everything that he says because whatever he says goes, literally. 
The emphasis in the first two verses is that the Lord accomplished what he said exactly the way that he said it. So with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah have been waiting. For 25 years, 25 years for God to fulfill this promise. Some of you here, many of you here, aren't even 25 years old. 25 years of waiting. And I can imagine that they're feeling, finally, it's happened. Sarah conceived, had this child. But I want you to think about some more context of the past here. You may remember back in chapter 18, God with two angels visited Abraham and told him that Sarah is going to have this child at this point in time. Do you remember what Sarah's response was when she overheard that? She laughed, right? That's, that's very interesting. Very interesting because that laugh what it seems like in that chapter was a laugh of disbelief, right? Because then she's confronted and, oh, no, I didn't laugh, I didn't laugh. It's a laugh that she's ashamed of. But I want you to think even earlier. In, in the chapter before this, in chapter 17, when God changes Abraham and Sarah's names, he says they're going to have a son. And he tells them in chapter 17 what the son's name is supposed to be, which is Isaac which means laughter. So before there's any laughter, God says this child's name is going to be laughter. Then there's a laughter of disbelief. Ooh, is this child going to be known for disbelief, disbelieving laughter? Is that what this child's going to be known for? I mean, it's definitely part of the story, but that's, that's not going to be the emphasis in the story. You move on, enter into chapter 21, and Sarah is laughing at the birth of her son Isaac. And what, what kind of laughter, what kind of laughter is this? Joy. Amazement. There is an aspect of disbelief, but in the positive sense, like, I can't believe, but it, he's here. It's a joy at God fulfilling the promise. A joy that God has given this son. And by the way, this isn't just any son. Right? As we've been going through Genesis, this is the promise of God that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. And so this is a son who is going to lead someday to the serpent crusher. So there is immense joy. And Sarah's laughing. And Sarah doesn't say, not just me. I'm not going to be the only one who's laughing. Any other woman who hears of this is going to laugh. And the phraseology here seems to be that the people are going to have a joyous laughter that's over and above hers. 
Like she's going to laugh, but they're going to be louder. Their laughter is going to be one of amazement as well. I want to ask you a question. Has God been testing Sarah's faith in all of this too? We've, we've focused a lot on Abraham, but God's been testing Sarah's faith. And her laughter has switched from unbelief to believing amazement. See, see this is what God does in the heart of his people over time, over testing. And I ask you, has that ever happened in your life? But notice here in this section as well, not only Sarah, but Abraham. Because joy and obedience go together in this text. What's emphasized with Abraham is that he circumcises the son. Why does he do that? Because God told him that that's what you're supposed to do. And he names his son Isaac. Why? Not because he came up with the name, but God told him to give his son that name. I think, when I, when I think of these verses here, and I think about the original audience that's reading this, who, who, who is that again? The wandering Israelites. I think what God is revealing in this part of the chapter is that faith flows into joy and obedience. And just ignore the word think. Okay. Well, think, but ignore it up there. Faith flows into joy and obedience. Think back to Paul's words in Romans. He's struggling. Struggling with his faith. But he's reminded of the good news of the serpent crusher Jesus, right? He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next response is not, I guess Jesus. Because that's the answer always. And what does he say? I thank my God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's saying, praise God, I have victory. There's no condemnation, and now I can obey, right? This faith flows into joy and obedience. You can't have one without the other. So I think of the psalmist in Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Ventura, friends, I ask you, do you know the joy of the Lord? Do you rejoice? Yeah, every once in a while. No, no, I, I, if I were to ask your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, do you see joy in their life? Where do you see it? Where do you see their joy in God? Not just happy, I got a new toy, I got a new thing. Do you see joy in your parents' life, joy in God? And where is it? Where does it show up? What would they say? Parents, I think that's a great question at lunchtime. Ask your kids. Where do you see my joy in the Lord show up? Because the psalmist also says, he's put a new song in my heart. What is that new song? It's a song of salvation. 
even praise to my God. And he says, many will see it. He doesn't even say many will hear it because you would hear a song, right? He actually says many will see it and then will trust in the Lord. There's a difference when you have joy in the Lord. It's seen. Sarah has this joy. And Abraham exerts obedience. And that's, that's what I want to emphasize too, because the scriptures emphasize this, this connection, not only in Romans, but also if you hear in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Strength for what? Strength to obey. Strength to follow after the Lord. Strength to live for his glory. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So, so I want to I push this a little bit further. How many of you have ever had situations where you felt spiritually high? And maybe it's in a church service or it's somewhere. You're, you're at something. You feel spiritually high. And then almost immediately you engage with something. I don't know. You drive in the car and some weird driver's out there. And you're like, oh, you idiot. You know, or maybe you never say that. Okay. Um, but you get in the car and you're angry with your kids or you're, whatever it is. How many of you have ever had a, what you felt like was a spiritually high moment immediately to be destroyed? Okay. All right. Yep. Now, I want you to test that. Because you know, I think sometimes what we do is we want to ride on the spiritual high instead of the one from which we get that high, so to speak. Does, does that make sense? It, we transfer our trust from the Lord to the experience. And that's a fatal problem. It's a fatal flaw. Remember, the word worship and to have joy in the Lord, the word worship is a value term. It's worth-ship. Who, who has the supreme worth? God. And if you know his supreme worth and you truly believe and embrace this and say, Lord, help my unbelief, unite this reality to my heart, then we don't turn to things of lesser worth. You hear that? If we have genuine joy in the Lord, then it flows into obedience. Because then we say, my trust is in him, not in just the experience. Now let's get back to the text. I hope you see with Abraham and Sarah's faith, the faithfulness of God in growing them. Their faith is being revealed. And it's like what's said in scriptures elsewhere, you're tried and you will come forth as gold. There's some gold showing in Abraham and Sarah. And that's because of the Lord. And the same is true again for us who've turned from our sins, turned to Christ for reconciliation and forgiveness. And the Apostle Paul writes to us, finally, brothers, rejoice! Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Whoa. Rejoice and love. Rejoice and obey the Lord. 
Rejoice, follow him, and love others. This is what we see. The good news of the seed of the woman causes the change. The good news of the seed of the woman impels obedience and joy. We see this in small ways with Abraham and Sarah. We should see this in large ways with those who really know the serpent crusher, Jesus. But this isn't the only part of the story in this chapter. There's more context here. And the story goes on with Ishmael's laughter, Abraham's dependence, and God's presence. So we're going to read verses 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Isaac grew up and was weaned. Okay, this is just so interesting. In studying this text, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for 25 years for this child. And if we, we've been going through Genesis rather slowly, I think, and we've been waiting a while to hear about this birth as well. And this birth, from birth to weaning, gets eight verses. And the child grew up and was weaned. What? What, what in the world is going on? And then we have this situation with Ishmael that gets more verses, more attention. Why? It's on purpose. Because there's more going on here. There's more going on than, than only the birth of Isaac. At this point in time, Abraham, according to ancient resources, a child would be weaned generally around the age of three. So Abraham's 103 years old which puts Ishmael at 16, around 16 years old, all right? On the feast day of Isaac's weaning, Sarah sees something happen between Ishmael and Isaac. And in our English translations, it just looks like he's laughing and Sarah is upset. Why is she upset if he's just laughing? with a three-year-old child. I laugh with three-year-old children. Please don't kick me out. 
But see, here's, here, laughing is not an incorrect translation. But I don't think it's helpful for us as English readers. Because this is a different Hebrew word than the laugh of Hagar. This word for laughter here has ideas of mocking, deriding, and even abuse to it. In the other context where this word shows up, in the ESV, for example, the other context where the word laugh, this Hebrew word laugh shows up, uh, it's with regards to Isaac and Rebekah, and Abimelech sees them laughing, and he's like, you guys are married. <laughs> uh, this word has to mean something else. Because, I mean, if I'm laughing with another woman, don't assume we're married. Okay? There's something more here. Later on, this word is used with Potiphar's wife when she makes an accusation with Joseph. Okay? And she says that Potiphar has brought this Hebrew into their house to laugh at them. Now, the ESV is consistent in translating this word laugh until we get to Exodus 32, verse 5. And I think the Exodus is really important in understanding Genesis because who's the first readers of this? Who is it? The wandering Israelites. Hmm, interesting. The word shows up in Exodus 32.5 when we're told that the Israelites create a golden calf while Moses is on top of Sinai. And the ESV translates it that the Israelites rose up to play. They don't say laugh. They rose up. That's not a positive term, by the way. They're not just playing, right? We know the sin that was taking place. Based on the study of this word... I've already mentioned that it has connotations of mocking, deriding, and even abuse. Actually, there are, in, in, every, in every occasion that this word is used, there is also some sort of connection. I say it this way, there's some sort of connection with potential or actual sexual activity. So we can't say for sure that that's what's taking place with Ishmael and Isaac, but we do know that it's abuse. And actually, we can be confident that it's abuse because in Galatians, the apostle Paul says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Galatians 4.29, go ahead and look it up. So what's happened here is that Sarah sees a 16-year-old Ishmael persecuting, abusing her three-year-old. Oh, that makes sense now, right? Moms, mama bear, right? That makes sense. I never want them to be in the same place ever. In addition, Isaac is the promised seed, right? He's the promised child. And, and, and that's really important to remember in this story too because Events like this have gone on ever since Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden. The seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. That's what happened with Adam and Eve's children. That's what's happening here. Ishmael seeking to destroy Isaac. And so Abraham is challenged here to banish Hagar and Ishmael. Now, now 
please hear this. Don't take this as a defense of kicking out helpless people. Okay? These are miracles that are taking place here because what God is doing is he's also saying to Abraham, I will make sure I take care of them. I am going to take care of them. And I believe this is another test of Abraham to reveal his faith in the Lord. We're told in the text that he is distraught over this. He's disturbed by this. Why? Because this is his son. Yeah, this son came through sinful circumstances, but this is his son nonetheless. He loves his son. And God says, listen to Sarah. I will take care of him. And to send your son and this woman out into the wilderness is like a death sentence. Is Abraham going to trust the Lord? Is Abraham going to trust the Lord even though in his own thinking, they're going to die? God says no. Abraham trusts. He sacrifices his son. He says, go. You see? Do you see how the Lord has been testing Abraham's faith? Do you see Abraham's faith here? He's trusting. And by the way, we know he's testing to get to another test, right? But he believes and he follows through. And now we have Hagar and Ishmael. And we know that the Lord had interactions with Hagar earlier. And God revealed himself in a certain way and Hagar named him the God who sees and now Hagar is tested again. And now she, now she realizes he's not only the God who, who sees, he's the God who hears. He sees and hears. And God even hears Ishmael, the one who is threatening the seed of the woman. Do you see God's grace in that? The one who's threatening the seed of the woman, and God heard him. God listened to him and his cry. Listen. God saves all kinds of sinners, right? You can say, my story is so bad, so dark, so deep. God could never forgive that. No. God forgives all kinds of sinners. And he's willing and he is ready. Where are you today? Have you been like Ishmael, abusing image bearers, laughing, mocking? Or are you like Abraham who just turns to your own ways to try to protect yourself? Or are you like the Israelites creating certain things in your own life to stabilize you all the while you're not relying on the Lord? I hope you see God's patience and grace to show his life and mercy because God's faithfulness to his word should lead us to joy, dependence, and confidence in his promises, provisions, and presence. When God tests us, he's leading us to realize these realities. And he will grow these things in us as we say, who will deliver me? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. I am no longer bound to fear. He'll continue to teach us that. 
You may have noticed in all of our reading of this chapter, I have not read the final two verses. And I want to read them now in verses 33 and 34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Why is that important? Because these words reveal the rest that Abraham had in the Lord. Somehow, by God's mercy and grace, he's resting. Even though he still longs for a city whose builder and maker is God, he's resting here and he plants a tree. Why is he planting this tamarisk tree? The tree is representative of longevity. The tree is, is a symbol of life and growth that's based on the faithfulness of God because we're told here he cries out to God, the everlasting God. Mm. He's not only God, but he's everlasting. He is faithful to his promises, not just yesterday, not just today, not just tomorrow, but for forever. And so that tree was to be a reminder for Abraham and to the people. He gives life. He gives growth. And this city of Beersheba became the southernmost area of the nation of Israel. And I think it would teach, and this story would teach the Israelites as they're sojourning, is God worthy of trust? What is God doing in revealing our weaknesses? Oh, God is revealing he is worthy of our trust. God is revealing that he is good and right and wonderful and beautiful and glorious. And what does this story teach us? The same thing, the same reality. He is wonderful, beautiful, glorious, worthy of all of our trust. Will we believe? We have the Savior Jesus who, by the way, also came in tumultuous times. And his arrival, like Isaac, seemed to be overshadowed by the politics and circumstances of other people. Yet in that humble arrival, he revealed he's not just the perfect person. He's God come in the flesh to conquer sin and death and to draw humans to find their joy, dependence, and confidence in the Lord who fulfills his promises, provides eternally, and grants his presence forever. Do you believe do you see? He sees and hears you. Let's pray. So, Father, we cry out. I pray that we all cry out and say, who will deliver me? And I pray not only that we would cry out and say who would deliver me, but that we would all be able to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Oh, don't let us turn to lesser things. May we turn to you and rest in you, Jesus. All of us. And in the midst of our trials that you have ordained in all of our lives, I pray that we would be able, by your grace, to learn, to trust, to grow in our dependence on you and in the tension that we feel to also have the peace that passes understanding. To you be the glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.